vengo también aquí para pedirle apoyo, ayuda y justicia laboral. In 2019, Laudes Maldonado, a prominent and well-respected journalist, stood up at a press conference being given by President Andreas Manuel López Obrador. And she uttered these chilling words. Porque hasta temo por mi vida. I fear for my life. And she implored the president to protect her. Entonces vengo aquí a pedir ese apoyo, esa justicia. Y lo hago porque se trata de un personaje fuerte en política. Laudes was based in Tijuana, primarily covered politics and corruption in the state of Baja California. She'd been involved with a long-running legal dispute with a media outlet she used to work for, which was also owned by a former governor of the state. This legal dispute for wrongful dismissal lasted for almost nine years. On the 19th of January 2022, she received notice that the case had been ruled in her favor. Four days later, Laudes arrived home in her car, and as she pulled up, it was reported that three individuals got out of a taxi, approached Laudes, shot, and killed her, then picked up the spent bullet casings before leaving. Laudes Maldonado Lopez had been targeted before for doing her job, but this time she didn't survive. Gunmen shot her as she waited in a car in Tijuana's Santa Fe neighborhood. Police received a call, but it was too late when they arrived at the scene. She was the third journalist killed in 2022, and the second in Tijuana in less than a week, after the murder of Margarito Martinez Esquivel. It was reported that Laudes was included in a protection program run by the Baja California state government, and this included regular police patrols checking in on her. She also apparently kept a panic button at home rather than on her mobile phone because she didn't trust local authorities. Her murder sparked protests by journalists across Mexico, journalists in almost 40 locations, including in cities where protesting can draw the unwanted eye of organized crime. And they were calling for the Mexican government to do more to protect journalists. The committee to protect journalists called it a watershed moment. Although three individuals have been arrested in connection with the murder, the San Diego Union Tribune reported at the end of April that no information has been released for the safety of witnesses. Although a government official recently said that the murders of Laudes and Margarito were linked to a remnant of the Ariano Felix cartel, and it was related to her denunciation of drug dealers, but not the man she'd been in a long-running legal dispute with, who is reportedly a close personal friend of the president. But critics have pointed out that there's very little evidence in the government's claim, including some law enforcement who said that the Sinaloa cartel, not the Ariano Felix cartel, controlled the neighborhood in which Laudes was killed. Laudes's case is closed to both press and public. Updates are also scarce because prosecutors have insisted it be held behind closed doors, again citing a risk to a witness's life. We may never know the truth behind the assassination of Laudes Maldonado, and this total lack of transparency is an unusual in a country with widespread impunity. This is Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers.
usually when when a journalist gets killed, the reaction of society doesn't match what that society has lost with the killing of a journalist. Y a pesar de esto, con ustedes, con este premio, puedo decir que tengo donde guarecerme y sentirme menos solo. Because the only thing that is guaranteed when we are talking about the murder of a journalist or the disappearance of a journalist is impunity. Así como quién es quién en los precios de los lunes, vamos a sacar aquí un quién es quién. If the president disdains the press, they do it here too. In such a despised profession as journalism is nowadays, I think they will be able to attend to other things before investigating the murder of a journalist. You'll enter a downward spiral, a vicious cycle of violence and impunity and more violence and more impunity. And I fear that that's where we are right now in 2022. If you have a gun pointing to your head, it's a sensor. You are doing it for protect your life. It's not because you don't want to publish something. This is killing the power of the pen, violence against journalists in Mexico. Part two, I fear for my life. At the end of the last episode, we arrived at the issue of impunity. And before we get on to that, I wanted to reiterate that just a day after we released that episode, another two journalists were killed in Veracruz. Yesenia Molinedo Falcone and Sheila Johanna Garcia Oliveira, who were gunned down while sitting in a car, the 10th and 11th media worker to be killed this year. In the last episode, we heard from Leopoldo Maldonado, the regional director of the Office for Mexico and Central America of Article 19. And his organization recently released a report which said that attacks on the press have shot up 85% in the three years since Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador took up the presidency. If you combine that with the rate of impunity in Mexico, levels over 90%, it's so shocking that it takes you aback. Over 90% of the murders are never punished. The underlying message behind these figures to me is an attitude of the authorities towards journalists. Here's Syria Gastelem Felix, the Resilience Director at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm going to go back to the words of Marcela Turati. She said that in Mexico it's more dangerous to investigate a crime than to commit it. You know, part of the, we cannot just talk about impunity without talking about corruption. And this is, you know, takes us back, back again, you know, these very high levels of criminality where state embedded actors are some of the main players in this criminal landscape. So I think this, this situation where organized crime has been able to permeate institutions has complicated corruption, impunity, and all, and all these, these problems. There are, there are certain structural conditions that have made corruption hard to eradicate. I mean, the big inequality for a really long time, you know, also working in a, in a this is the legacy of the one-party system as well that created really corrupt networks that allowed criminal groups to 
to permeate the state institutions. So it is a big challenge. And, you know, I, I'm sure there is not one answer. So the question of why Mexico has such high rates of impunity is really complex and multifaceted and rooted in the recent political history of the country. And the levels of corruption and organized crime go hand in hand. Organized crime wouldn't have grown so big without the participation of the authorities, because as Syria said, it's the state embedded actors who are some of the main players in the criminal landscape. Now, in the last episode, we looked at the state of Veracruz and the former governor, Javier Duarte, and we'll come on to his demise shortly, but Duarte is emblematic of the blurred lines between politics and criminality in Mexico. He was the governor of Veracruz for nearly six years, and his premiership was mired in corruption. Officials siphoned off money from the state coffers and embezzled it through shell companies. Duarte left Veracruz one of the most censored, indebted and dangerous states in Mexico. Thousands were disappeared as the cartels battled one another, often with the collusion of state officials. Hundreds of bodies were found in mass graves and at least 17 journalists were killed. And so we should probably cap off what happened to Duarte. After his sudden resignation in 2016, he jumped in a helicopter and disappeared. Mexicans had seen corruption, crime and attacks on the press before, but this time they'd had enough. Duarte's party, the PRI, lost Veracruz after more than 80 years in power. After the loss, President Peña Nieto from the same PRI party seemed keen to bring him to account, but then Duarte vanished from right under the government's nose. He was found six months later in a hotel in Guatemala and extradited back to Mexico, where he was later sentenced to nine years in jail for corruption, money laundering and involvement in organized crime. Javier Duarte had been on the run from Mexican authorities for six months, now in custody in a Guatemalan military prison. Surrounded by reporters, he says repeatedly, I have no comment. As we've already talked about over these two episodes, the relationship between politics and journalism in Mexico is not good. The outward contempt Duarte showed to journalists was clear, and this is not uncommon in Mexico. Here's Leopoldo Maldonado. Aggressions on the part of the state has various origins. One of them has to do with the profoundly authoritarian nature of our political class, which shows public scrutiny and criticism. This generates violence, but what encourages this violence is impunity, which reaches levels of 98% of cases of crimes against the press. That is, 98% of the cases are not punished, and that evidently is an incentive for use this type of violence or for this violence to increase. Last year alone, we documented that the greatest perpetrator of violence in the state was the public authorities. 42% of the 644 aggression in total that we documented came from public authorities. We are talking about 222 aggressions committed by Mexican state authorities in 2021 alone. It is precisely because of this combination of intolerance and critical impunity 
that this spiral of violence is generated by the state. The importance of an independent free press can't be underestimated. It is a pillar of a healthy democracy. But that profoundly authoritarian nature of the political class that Leopoldo mentioned manifests itself at the highest levels. For example, even the current president, Andreas Manuel López Obrador, has a tendency to outwardly criticize the press, including targeting Leopoldo's organization, Article 19. AMLO has even gone so far as to feature a recurring segment on his morning press conferences called Who's Who of Lies, which names and shames individual reporters for their work. Así como quién es quién en los precios de los lunes, vamos a sacar aquí un quién es quién en las mentiras de la semana. And I always fear what can happen when political leaders attack one of the other pillars of democracy. It's a slippery slope. And that disdain AMLO holds for journalism spreads through the body politic. Here's journalist Miguel Angel Leon Carmona. Well, I tell you, in Veracruz, I believe that if at least in the discourse it prevails that there will be no impunity against journalists and that there have been some arrests, it is because of the pressure that we have generated from the guilt. But I do not believe that it is an issue that keeps them awake at night considering the generalized rejection from the presidency of the Republic. We have governors who imitate him and who make an effort to imitate him in every day. And well, if the president disdains the press, they do it here too. And well, I tell you, in such a despised profession as journalism is nowadays, I think they will be able to attend to other things before investigating the murder of a journalist. In the last episode, I gave you a few examples of impunity through the investigations into the murders of Regina Martinez, Ruben Espinosa, and Jose Luis Gamboa Arenas, and how the investigations were barely credible from the very beginning. So what does impunity actually look like in practice? Here's Jan Albert Hootsen from the Committee to Protect Journalists to explain. It ranges from not picking up the phone when a journalist tries to report a crime to telling them that they've asked for it themselves, not in implementing best practices in, in criminal investigations, uh, and ultimately not being able to provide judges with substantial evidence in order to uh, even come to a conviction in, in, in a case of a crime against a reporter. All of that together incentivizes more crime because, you know, very, very bluntly put, if you are somebody who believes that a journalist is attacking your interests, is affecting your interests, and you're willing to use lethal force, then the knowledge that you will very likely not be arrested and even less likely be sentenced for the crime might be might give you the final push to use lethal force against a reporter. Violence begets more violence and impunity begets more impunity. And if you allow that situation to fester long enough, then as a country, uh, as is happening right now in Mexico, you'll enter a downward spiral, a vicious cycle of violence and impunity and more violence and more impunity. And I fear that that's where we are right now in 2022. And what is so often the case is that the mastermind or intellectual author of a murder is almost never known, let alone prosecuted. This fact is borne out by the Global Assassination Monitor. 
In the last episode, we first heard from a voice we'll be hearing a lot more in this episode, and that's Griselda Triana, the wife of Javier Valdez. Porque al menos el 90%. Because at least 90%, and I would dare to say more, of the murders of journalists or disappearances are in impunity. I believe that this is the main problem because we are not aware of any case of a murder of a journalist in which the perpetrator and mastermind have been tried and sentenced. So we know that in Mexico, in general, when it happens, those who are brought to justice are the material authors. As in the case of Javier, two of them have already been tried and sentenced. A third one is dead. But the intellectual author? We have no information on this subject. What we do know is that he is in a prison in the United States serving a sentence for another type of crime. Since this guy turned himself into the U.S. authorities weeks after Javier was murdered. But there is an extradition order to be executed. And in the meantime, Javier's crimes remain unpunished, unsolved. And the same goes for most journalists. So, access to justice for the families is practically null. Es prácticamente nulo. So when violence against journalists is so pervasive and fear is amplified, you can completely understand why a journalist would either leave the profession or practice self-censorship to protect themselves and those around them. But renowned investigative journalist Marcella Tarati says it shouldn't be called self-censorship but something else. Now in this moment, we don't say self-censorship because we we say that it's a censorship, that if you have a gun pointing to your head, it's a censor. You are doing it for protect your life. It's not because you don't want to publish something. But just in many places of Mexico, you cannot publish many things. You cannot publish about massacres or people who has been disappeared. Sometimes you think that in some places there is not press working. And then when you go and cover something, you discover that there are many journalists, but they have been tortured. They receive phone calls or maybe sometimes WhatsApp message of the militars of the or of the cartel members asking them or ordering them what to publish or what not publish. So, for example, in these massacres that I have been covering for 10 years, I discovered that the this was in Tamaulipas, no? in close to Texas, where many people were killed, people who were in the highways and they were stopped in one town called San Fernando. They were killed by the Zetas and the municipal police involved in these cases. And we have more than 200 bodies of people killed, but we, we know that there were more people killed. And many people say that they could not tell that these highways were really dangerous and there were people killed like many weeks at the same hour in the same town. And journalists say that they cannot publish nothing. They cannot say nothing 
And that was the place where 72 migrants were killed before these other killings. And the local press cannot write about it, no? So many times we have to use strategies to publish things because we know that the local press cannot publish. Uh, so they have to give the information to national reporters or to foreign correspondents, or they have to publish it without name or write a book, but in silence and publish it like many years later when the people involved are killed or are dead because you know that there are some rules and if you broke these rules that the organized crime with government they establish that you will be killed or disappear or you will have to abandon your hometown and to start again in another place. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. We have states like Tamaulipas or places or regions of Veracruz or many, many places in Mexico where the silence is dull and the journalists cannot publish what they know or investigate because they know that, it's, that they will be finished killed, you know, that they will be killed if, if they think, only think about publishing that. You know? And so perhaps we need to change the narrative of this from self-censor and call it what it is, censorship. It's a small but important distinction. Here's journalist Miguel Angel again. Yes, I was thinking about that because I believe that both statements can be taken as real. That is, finally, I understand that when Marcela says that there is only censorship, it is because effectively everything starts from there and self-censorship would be like a reflection of the pressure that there could be against us from our employers, from what, from the people who could harm us in the street, the power groups. But it seems to me that it is an interesting reflection because I think that I do not know if by saying self-censorship, it is like inviting us to a little bit of this responsibility, like saying, no, it is the journalist's fault because he censors himself. But possibly, as Marcela says, everything arises from censorship. One only remembers, well, the consequences that may occur. I think it goes that way. And you might think, why not just report something else? Avoid organized crime and corruption. Well, nothing is free from this. Here's Marcella Tarati again. My friend who one day, he was assigned to cover the football league for children. And he was threatened. Yes, one man came to his place and said to him that he has to publish a good article about one kid because he was the son of the capo, the local capo. Or if you cover, I don't know, culture or music, you can receive a treatment because maybe you were in the funeral, funeral or a party of uh, some artist and he was involved in the 
drugs and you see something that you don't supposed to see or you take a picture that is forbidden but you don't know so it's really really difficult uh, because everything is corrupt and we have all this relationship among uh, the government the politicals and the drug organizations We have to add here that there are protections in place at a federal and local level, and we heard that Laudas Maldonado was receiving protections from the Baja California state government. But the effectiveness of these protections are questionable. So let's quickly run through them with Jan Albert from the Committee to Protect Journalists. First and foremost, there is the federal mechanism for the protection of journalists. This is an institution that was created 10 years ago in the summer of 2012 and coordinates from Mexico City protective measures, usually in, in, in coordination with state governments. And those can be the, you know, any of about 45 different measures that are in the catalog of the federal mechanism, such as uh, bodyguards or a panic button or an armored car or camera systems at the residences of a journalist, etc. There are a lot of different ways journalists can be, at least on paper, protected by the federal mechanism. Uh, there are a bunch of state mechanisms in Mexico that aim to work somewhat in the same way as as the federal mechanism, most notably in Veracruz and in in Mexico City. Uh, Full disclosure, I'm actually a member of the Advisory Council for the evaluation of protection, uh, protective measures of the Mexico City mechanism. So so I'm I'm pretty deeply involved in that particular institution. There is a federal uh, prosecutor's office for attention to crimes committed against freedom of expression, which is basically a special prosecutor that looks into crimes against the press and against human rights defenders. And it's based out of Mexico City, but works in the entire country. And finally, there are some institutions such as the National Human Rights Commission and the Executive Commission for Attention to Victims. The National Human Rights Commission provides recommendations to federal institutions and state institutions about violations of human rights, including journalists, crimes against the press, murders against journalists, etc. Those are uh, non-binding resolutions by the CNDH, but they can help as a benchmark to hold states state and federal governments accountable in Mexico. And the central, uh, the Executive Commission for Attention to Victims was created uh, under the Peña Nieto administration to provide reparation of damages and support to the victims of crimes. And journalists are also involved in in that particular institution. They can also receive uh, support from them. Uh, So it sounds like a lot. And uh, if these institutions were strong enough and had enough people working for them that were correctly trained and had the right political will for it, it should actually make a difference. But obviously, these statistics sort of contradict that idea. So following on from Jan Albert, and it's a question that stuck in my mind throughout my research for this episode, and that was related to the family that's left behind. You have the psychological and emotional effects of the loss itself, which will never likely leave you and manifest themselves in completely different ways, like insomnia, depression, eating disorders, panic attacks, and so on. But alongside that, Family members are often targeted themselves, harassment, intimidation and threats. Just put yourself in their shoes for a moment and imagine that. Unable to properly grieve for a loved one because of fear for your own safety or the rest of your family. But there are also other concerns and that's a lack of awareness of the rights families have. They are entitled to full redress for harm as victims of crimes and serious human rights violations. 
This means that the state is meant to guarantee access to restitution, rehabilitations and compensation, and to prevent reoccurrences. But this process has been filled with issues. So to find out about this side of the violence against journalists in Mexico, I wanted to speak to someone who had been through this. So here's Griselda Triana, the wife of Javier Valdez, who was killed in 2017. Y bueno, eh, quiero decirte que era Javier un I want to tell you that Javier was an excellent partner. We were married for 26 years. For more than 26 years, we shared the responsibility of forming a family with my daughter, my son. And well, I think that the most important thing for Javier, besides his activity as a journalist, was his family. Javier was a loving father, a responsible father, but also a demanding father. So, well, like most of us who are moms and dads, our life at some point revolves around our children. Javier said that in the face of so much violence, forced disappearances, executions, among other crimes, the worst thing that could happen was indifference. And he was never going to do that. And knowing him, knowing him well, in other words, that was how Javier began to find that the victims of the violent context in Sinaloa needed to be visible. They needed to be heard. They needed the rest of society to know what was going on. He said that it was difficult for him to write, to write about the beautiful things of Sinaloa, about the rivers, about the 11 rivers of Culiacán, about its sunsets, about all these things. And I think that was valid, right? But he could not. I mean, there was so much, so much, so much violence, so many victims, so many women looking for their daughters, their sons, their disappeared husbands. In short, he could not stay on that side, could he? So he dedicated himself to writing about the stories that he published, that he narrated. Javier became an internationally renowned journalist when he received the International Press Freedom Award from the Committee to Protect Journalists in 2011. Griselda told me that it was after Javier received this award that he thought his new fame would maybe protect him against violence or threats. And that makes me remember a day when Javier and I met with a friend in a bar, where the owner of the bar hanged a canvas inside the place to welcome Javier when he arrived from New York for the award he had received. I went with him. So we went and we found that congratulation message. It was for Javier and for me at that moment. It was very emotional because someone had that gesture from a place you visit often. So it was nice. I have a very clear memory that an acquaintance of ours came by, congratulated Javier. But he also told us something that we had not thought of 
with a more serious tone, he told him that the taller, the wider. So I understood at that moment, and Javier too, that the more projection you have, the more recognition you have. The more you are exposed, the more you are easily seen. Javier was killed six years later, an assassination that the police originally and not surprisingly blamed on a car theft. At this point, Griselda and her family had joined countless others in Mexico. People have never been prepared to be victims, and therefore we do not spend our lives with a manual that explains what to do in case we become victims. After a traumatic and violent event, we begin to receive so much information that it takes us a lot of work and time to process. For example, assimilating that we are direct or indirect victims, and therefore that we need to exercise our rights as such. I was really struck by that line. People have never been prepared to be victims. Again, while going through this traumatic moment in your life, you have to learn about something completely new and incredibly complicated. What rights you're entitled to. In May 2021, Griselda wrote a report for the Global Initiative and it was called The Forgotten Ones. In it, she described the experience of the families of murdered and disappeared journalists in Mexico in three words. Disinformation, intimidation and bias. Because in those moments, families do not trust. Families do not want to know anything from the states, from the institution, from the government institutions that were supposed to protect them. So there's a lot of distrust. The approach with the victims must be very careful and respectful. So yes, that is what I am referring to when there is disinformation. There is information. The problem is that is it does not arrive at the right time and it does not arrive in a simple language, clear to the victims. And it does not arrive through sensitive people with experience in working with victims. And of course, there is also intimidation. There are many cases in which families are intimidated, stigmatized because they are relatives of journalists. And then the question is that if they killed him, it was for something. It is the first thing that happens and what the families of murder and disappeared journalists experience. And then there are cases in which the authorities themselves have even discouraged the families from knowing more about the investigations. So I think that the information is also biased and that it is painful for the families. It is easier for the authorities to tell them that perhaps the motive for the murder is a personal matter or a car theft, as in the case of Javier, or any other reason. In addition, the information about the processes is provided to the families in drips and drops, and sometimes not even that, because the families, many families, even after many years, have not had access to the investigation files. And if we go back years, we go back in time to the files, to the preliminary investigations, then this is also a complicated step for the families. 
So this makes it difficult for the families to get justice. In other words, why is it so difficult for the families of murder or disappeared journalists to get justice? Because the only thing that is guaranteed when we are talking about the murder of a journalist or the disappearance of a journalist is impunity. O desaparición de un periodista es la impunidad. When impunity levels are so incredibly high and family members are receiving harassment or intimidation, campaigning for justice is dangerous. Griselda told me of a story of a family member of a murdered journalist who was offered money to leave the region of Veracruz by the former and now jailed governor Javier Duarte. Yeah, that guy again. An attempt to buy silence and inhibit the quest for justice. There are so many issues here to address that it's hard to know where to begin. The killing of a journalist goes to the very heart of a democratic society. And so here is a simple question that doesn't have a simple answer. What can be done to solve this problem in Mexico? Here's Jan Albert again from the CPJ. I think on the institutional level, uh, the Mexican government needs to invest far more, not only in institutions like the federal mechanism, it actually is already investing more in the, uh, in the federal mechanism, but also in the federal prosecutor, special prosecutor's office. Uh, I think the Mexican justice state over the past few years has been progressively eroded by perverse initiatives uh, introduced by successive federal governments, such as the creation of the National Guard, that actually, as an effect, take away the incentive of states and other federal institutions to invest in proper procurement of justice, proper investigations, proper training of personnel, proper tools against corruption, safeguards uh, against, against collusion uh, with criminal gangs. And uh, in order for impunity to drop, then, the, then the, Me the Mexican government really has to address those issues. I believe that the president also needs to change his rhetoric and that the Mexican federal government needs to redefine its relationship with journalists, uh, needs to prioritize basic human rights, such as freedom of expression, because that's the only way you can, you, you can change a culture of indifference that exists within institutions in the federal and state governments. And I think finally, we also need to support journalists themselves in the sense that journalists need to get more social security, they need to get higher pay, they need to get higher salaries, because a lot of journalists in Mexico, they're working under extreme pressure with editors breathing down their necks and demanding that they do certain stories. Uh, and all, you know, any kind of precaution goes out the window when you uh, uh, when you have an editor breathing down your neck telling you to cover uh, to cover something, and you really don't have time to do anything about it. So I think that I, I think we also need to redefine labor relations between journalists and their outlets in order to make it safer for them. And then and only then will impunity levels start to drop a little bit. And I think I'd like to end on a quote from Javier Valdez. He once said that society needs to protect journalists. And I want to know exactly what he meant by that. Here's Syria Gastelum Felix. He meant, I think, that society needs to value journalism as an integral part of its democracy and be ready to defend it as such. Civil society should demand authorities to protect journalists because journalism helps it keep governments accountable. But our society is not aware of the value of media. Our history with freedom of expression is relatively new. 
So for a long time, our media consumption consumption came from one source. So there is a public distrust of the media and authorities keep undervaluing it, its worth. So this leaves journalists to fend for themselves. And we shouldn't really leave them alone when because by protecting journalism, we are protecting democracy, the rule of law, the truth, the information we need to, be, to make better choices. I think what Javier meant was that there needs to be greater awareness in society about the value of journalism and to see journalism for what it's worth in in the democracies we're trying to to strengthen and and to live so yeah he said that usually when when a journalist gets killed the reaction of society doesn't match what that society has lost with the killing of a journalist That's it for this episode, Killing the Power of the Pen, Violence Against Journalists in Mexico. I'd like to thank Marcela Tarati, Leopoldo Maldonado, Griselda Triana, Miguel Angel Leon Carmona, Syria Gastelum Felix, and Jan Albert Hutzen. Look out for a couple of these interviews in their entirety. I'll be releasing them as bonus episodes later in the summer. For more information about this topic, there will be a reading list provided in the podcast notes. Please could you rate, review, subscribe to this podcast and share it around if you can. For other podcasts, videos or research into global organized crime, head over to the Global Initiative website, which is globalinitiative.net. We're also across social media. Just search for the Global Initiative and you'll find us. This has been Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening. Thank you.